I have become Film is Lit, destroyer of podcasts. Welcome to Film is Lit, the full spoilers podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, the self-appointed film expert. And my name is Laura, she, her, the self-appointed lit expert. And today is a very special episode for two reasons. One, we're doing a new release, trying to get this out as soon as possible, something we've never done before. Mm -hmm. We're usually covering releases months after they've come out because reading books takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Certainly reading the book for this episode took a long time. A 27-hour audiobook. (laughs) So yeah, today, if you couldn't gleam from the episode title... We are covering Oppenheimer. Ever heard of it? (laughs) Released in 2023, directed by our boy Christopher Nolan, based on the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, written in 2005. And winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Yes. So the other reason this is a very special episode, it's a guest episode. We finally are having him on after being on his podcast twice, the Super 70 podcast. It's our pleasure to welcome Dylan Davis to the pod. Dylan, say hi. Hi, I'm Dylan Davis with the Super 70 podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. You've been on your podcast two years ago, right? Wow, yeah, just about, yeah. How time flies. Yeah, the last time we were talking to you, we were not married. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Now we are. Laura and I are married to each other, not to you, Dylan. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Dylan, for those who don't know you, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a resident of the state of Texas, and I am a film nerd from from my early childhood. Uh, the first movie I saw was Star Wars in the theater in a re-release in 78 or 79. And uh, I studied film um, in my master's degree at the University of Houston. And I don't work in the industry at all, but it's always been something that I've focused on. I started a podcast, a Super 70 podcast in 2016 when I still lived in uh, Canada. And ever since then, I've tried to put out at least one episode a month. And most of my episodes are commentary cast in which you do a reading along with the film and thanks for having me on film is lit i listen to most of your episodes i don't like to to listen to an episode unless i've read the book or i've seen the seen the film and you you cover some fantastic stuff and some of your your episodes are greater than the book and greater than the movie i mean your episode on sideways was phenomenal absolutely phenomenal oh, oh thank th- you so thank much you. That, that was such a fun episode yeah that was one that's one of our biggest hits and yeah personally that's one of our favorites too because we were totally surprised by that book and movie we expected the movie to be good but to watch a movie and be blown away by its quality it's so rare these days especially for cinephiles like us we usually have a pretty good indicator of how we will like a certain movie how we'll feel about it so to be surprised is uh such a a core memory so Mm -hmm. thank you for that listeners if you want to listen to our episode on dylan's podcast we did a commentary on akira Mm -hmm. the seminal perfect uh, manga film so i definitely recommend that um and oh, Ryan Burns was on that with us too. Yeah. 
frequent guest of the pod, Ryan Burns. Yes. Shout out Ryan Burns. Cool. Well, today, what an episode we have in front of us right now. A behemoth of a book. Our audiobook was 27 hours. And the actual book is 600 pages. Yeah. So buckle up for a long read. I don't know. Dylan, you might have read it a couple times, but it took me three months to get through this entire book. Yeah, I read I read American Prometheus sometime shortly after it came out. So it was about 15 years ago. And I did I was already pretty familiar with most of that story, uh, except for the security clearance trial. And I was aware of Oppenheimer since I, I heard the reference in Well, Fat Man and Little Boy, which came out in 1990, in which uh, Dwight Schultz from the A-Team mm-hmm. played Murdoch on the A-Team TV show. He played Oppenheimer. And Leslie Groves was played by Paul Newman. And so I was familiar with that. And then the reference in um, the Sean Connery film by John McTiernan, um, The Hunt for Red October, in which he drops the the famous line from the Bhagavad Gita during that film and so mm-hmm. i was familiar with that and familiar with the story and then i read american P- prometheus probably about a year after it came out and then i just read ray monk's book a life in the center and that was that was 700 pages so i'm pretty i feel like oh, i've got wow. a, a working knowledge of, of of what happened oh wow okay so i actually have a couple of questions that we can get into later but you may be able to shed some light on things that i either missed from the book or didn't quite understand. Um, but that's helpful to have more context because it's very, very complicated story. Mm-hmm. It is. And there's actually, there's a, there's a post post story to this, which many people may not know about, but in, in 1994, 95, the Smithsonian did an exhibit um, on, on Trinity and Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And it caused an enormous controversy and when I was in grad school, we were we were studying it as it affected historiography because the historians and the politicians were at war with each other for well over a year. And I, it's still not resolved. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of that conflict in the film Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can get into that as well later if, if you want. Yes, to. Yeah, that'd be great. Both of you have alluded to the fact that both the book and the movie are not just about the making of the atomic bomb. They are about the full aftermath of Oppenheimer's decision to be the project leader, director of the Manhattan Project and and the fallout, pun intended, of that. I think the movie was not necessarily mismarketed, but there's a heavy emphasis put on the Trinity test. And spoilers, full spoilers, the Trinity test happens at hour two of the film. And the film is three hours. There is a full hour after that. And I would say the trailers definitely were like, the movie's about this. And a lot of people are going to be, I feel, surprised at what the movie turns into after that. Mm -hmm. Very excited to talk about this. But before that, let's get into personal journeys with both the book and the film. So Dylan, how about you kick us off? Yeah, well, I saw it on on full seventy millimeter in an IMAX theater. Although there's there's a huge difference between an IMAX screen and a seventy millimeter screen. So what I saw was a truncated form of the IMAX experience. There's only one IMAX theater in Houston. It's it's inside the Loop, and it's quite far uh, from where I live. So I didn't I didn't trek all the way down there and pay the thirty five dollars ticket. I went with my son. So about the seventy millimeter ticket because there's a an AMC theater multiplex, uh, probably about 15 miles away. So it's about half the distance 
And so I went and saw it in 70 mil uh, with a broken air conditioner, I might add. So it was oh, really, no. it was actually quite hot in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a packed audience. It was the, the movie sold out, which I was really surprised because we all know that this is also Barbie weekend. This is Barbenheimer weekend. And so the, the right. parking lot was full. It was full at the it was full at the uh, Cinemark when we passed by the Cinemark on the freeway to to, to get to the theater. I saw it Friday night uh, at a six thirty showing, and despite the heat, people stayed. And uh, we were we were not in the middle of our row. We were probably about twenty five percent of the way down. Nobody left our row to go to the bathroom in three hours and one minute. I didn't see anybody in the theater uh, get out and use the restroom. And I saw a lot of veterans. A lot of older people in in the audience, as long as uh, a lot of a lot of younger people. I was surprised at the range at which people were going. So uh, my my the rest of my family saw Barbie the day before on the advanced screening on Thursday, and I might I might go see that one on Tuesday night. I don't know, but that that was my experience. I was I was happy to see it in the way that Nolan intended mm-hmm. it, and I'm certainly not going to dog anybody who saw it in 35 mil uh, on digital. That's fine. Yeah. What about you? So we saw it at our favorite place on earth, the Alamo Draft House in Los Angeles in 35 millimeter. So uh, yeah, you're not gonna dog us as you said. We, out of principle, try not to give our business to AMC. We're lucky that in LA we do have options, but yeah, don't let me get on my soapbox because I'll, I'll rip AMC a new one. We'll be here for two hours. <laughs> yeah, just talking about that, not about the episode. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, getting to the Alamo in LA is always a disaster because it's in the heart of downtown. Anyone who's from LA or who has been to LA knows that getting into downtown at any time of day is venturing into hell on earth. You're venturing into Mordor and there's always traffic no matter the time. So I wish there was an Alamo somewhere else like anywhere else in LA I'd be fine <laughs> it's literally in the worst place it could be but we love the theater nonetheless we've also been reading the book as Laura said over the past few months not because it's boring or non-accessible it's just a lot it takes a while to absorb the information now Dylan I know you've read additional material not just American Prometheus. I don't know if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, well, I read American Prometheus probably about a year or two after it came out because I saw it in a library. I checked it out in in the library. So I think it was published in 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. I think I read it in uh, six or seven. And like I was saying before, I, I was pretty familiar with the Manhattan Project story because we studied it in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I was really unfamiliar with the security trial. So American Prometheus did a very good job of educating me on that. Of course, I had forgotten all of those details when you asked me to, to come onto the podcast mm-hmm. and talk about it. So I read uh, Ray Monk's book, A Life Inside the Center, which is another 700 pages of material, which really focuses on Incredible. on two other items in, in uh, Oppenheimer's past, which is his his early life as as a Jew fighting his Jewishness, as, as it's described in the book. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another aspect of his of his career as a physicist. So Ray Monk goes into why Oppenheimer was chosen for this job, why he was important in the physics community, and what other physicists taught about him, and the fact that 
uh, everywhere Leslie Groves went by rail across the country, everyone was saying, well, you know, Oppenheimer knows a whole lot about this topic, but I'm not really sure if he's the guy that you want running this laboratory. Mm. So it, it did go heavily into that and his work in radio waves and his work in black holes, his, his work in mesons. Uh, which was extremely important to him. He spent most of his career in mesons and talking about protons and electrons and neutrons and trying to to figure all of that out and how it was working and functioning. So I, it was really an eye-opener to read that second book. And then, of course, to see the film, I, I couldn't believe just how jam-packed the film was with this information. Yes. No, seriously. I, I actually wrote down when we were in the theater that it was quite a risk for both the book and the movie not to focus so much on that final Trinity test. And then again, as you said, the fallout from that, which was the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it really doesn't stop. And I found the book a little, it kind of dropped off a little bit for me. Um, I guess I can get into my journey a little bit too. Um, But it's a, it is a risk, I think, because that really is how the narrative of not only World War II, but also Oppenheimer's life has been presented through history books or school, whether you studied it in college or not. That is really where the story ends and where people's, I think, interest probably wanes. It's kind of like, oh, World War II is done. And the end, you know, nice kind of bow. Um, But it didn't stop there. There were a lot of things. they came after, especially I read a lot when I was preparing for this podcast about the consequences of the Trinity test on civilians in the area and how that story has had updates as recent as 2022 and how those people, not only survivors, but also survivors of people who passed away like their parents had very short lives due to cancer um, because of radiation exposure. So this story really doesn't end where I think a lot of people consider it to be done. And I really appreciate that the book and the movie took that risk to like continue the story, even though it's not that like considerable like bomb explosion end piece. So that's, that's kind of my thought on it. I don't have too much of a history with the book. Like I said, I I just started it three months ago and was very taken by it. Um, my, my, uh, one thing about the movie that caused me a lot of anxiety going into it was that when I was about, I think like 15 or so, my family and I went to a ro- on a road trip and we went to Louisiana and we visited the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Dylan, I'm sure, I don't know if you've been there, but it's fairly close to you, I suppose. And you've been there twice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it was one of those things where we had gone because my brother was really into history. And I, being a teenager, was just kicking and screaming, like, I be, just because my brother was interested. It was really just me being a brat (laughs) but we went and they had sort of a simulated experience of going through an atomic bomb blast um where you basically i'm pretty sure it was an imax theater and you basically sat and (laughs) were blown away by visuals on the screen and i think that there was some kind of like you know 4d like shaking the seats and 
wind and stuff like that. And like, I was traumatized. I I was very, and I'm not using that as like a joke. Like I had a a very severe panic attack walking out of the theater after that because I wasn't really prepared. I kind of thought it was more of a discussion of, or more of like a little, like a mini documentary. I wasn't completely prepared for the actual explosion experience. So I had a pretty severe panic attack coming out of that museum. And so I was really nervous going into this movie that it would kind of send me back to that space and I would have a panic attack again. But I think one of the reasons that I found the movie, it was still very intense, but I wasn't as anxious by the time the bomb went off was I think like the discussion around it was much more accessible to me. And I think the anxiety came not so much from the bomb test or the understanding of what happened at those two actual bombing sites. It was more that discussion of like the struggle that Oppenheimer had to lead up to that and also the consequences and his feelings after that. It made me feel like it was more of a discussion rather than like a celebration of what had happened. And I think that's why I felt more okay with the movie because it did sort of confront us with that ethical dilemma rather than that being something that was like a very clear cut success for the United States. So that's my journey. Well, I don't mean to be sadomasochistic about it, Laura, but I wish more people had your experience. Yeah. Because that experience would inform the way that we discuss and and think about uh, the atomic device. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. It's always been complicated. It's never been clean cut. And that was one of the things about the the Smithsonian scandal in the 90s was mm. these very section of people saying, uh, you know, how dare you rewrite history and talk about uh, the bomb is controversial. And uh, I, don't, I never understood that point of view. The bomb has always been controversial. It was controversial mm-hmm. before they even made it with scientists saying, you know, as evidenced in the film Oppenheimer, scientists saying, I'm not going to have any part of this. You know, I don't want to take part in something that creates something like this and like Oppenheimer had had said like we knew that the world had changed and they were so busy trying to make it that a lot of them didn't think about what would happen like the the physicist Robert Wilson like we didn't think too much about what would happen after it was used and then after it was used a lot of them uh, backtracked a lot of them never changed their minds Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of them tried to limit its use, like Oppenheimer did. And I think the film uh, has that debate very clearly. I'm, I'm interested to see what the blowback is in the following week after, after this film's release. Because I know that there's going to be somebody somewhere who's got a problem with the way that this is portrayed. It's never been clean cut, yeah. you know, the morality of, of the bomb. And I think that Nolan did a really good job of touching on that. I completely agree. It'll be interesting to see the shift of acceptance of of people with that, like you said, from the 90s to now, about how well Americans can accept that complicated moral question, especially when I don't I don't really have a good understanding of how many people are aware of how close we should have been not to drop the first bomb in Hiroshima and certainly the second bomb as well about how potentially we were very close to being able to uh, sign a peace treaty with Japan before actually deciding to drop the bomb. Like, I don't know how many people are aware how close that call was. 
And I think that the movie also did a really good job of showing how that really came from President Truman, who had his own selfish nature. I think he was portrayed in a really interesting way in the movie. Oh, and a scene-stealing cameo by the legend Gary Oldman. Right. Yeah, kind of a surprise there. Like a very interesting casting choice, but it worked. Um, I thought it, I thought he did a great job. But again, it's that scene in particular is another really good example of how we weren't just saying like this bombastic, you know, they were going to keep fighting and we were going to keep losing American lives if we didn't drop the bomb. So that was our only choice. It really showed the um, the flaws of humanity yeah. and in the president to make that decision and how we got to that decision. It wasn't a clean cut thing, even though he might have sort of framed it in that way. Um, but anyway, going back to our, well, case in point, I didn't know that. I didn't know how close the war was to being over before Mm -hmm. we dropped the bomb. And so that was a huge learning experience for me reading the book. I always thought dropping the bomb was kind of like an inevitability, right? Right. To learn that it, it, it was much more complicated than that was huge for my understanding of the situation. Yeah. So, and I think the movie really reflects that. Yeah. My journey. So, the 2000s, 2000 to 2010, Nolan is on a hot streak. I am in my formative years. Everything this dude makes is the best thing I've ever seen in my life, okay? Saw Batman Begins in fourth grade. A little scary for a fourth grader, but different and edgy. Loved it. The next movie he makes, The Prestige. He doesn't make The Dark Knight right after. He makes this contained, small movie about a rivalry. Very topical for this movie, rivalry. We'll get into that. Love The Prestige. Was blown away by that. The Dark Knight comes out. Everyone knows The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. It's a masterpiece. There's nothing more to be said about it. Inception comes out. Another banger. It is banger after banger for Nolan, and Nolan has this fan base of fanboys because of this run. Mm -hmm. And we should say Insomnia came out before Batman Begins. I didn't see that until I was in high school, but that also gained some fanboys through that. Great casting with Robin Williams as the villain. Very interesting casting. Interesting casting will continue throughout Nolan's career. So yeah, I was Team Nolan hardcore. And then I think we get into the 2010s and I respect most of his films post Inception. However, I do have problems with each film. The Dark Knight Rises has a bunch of plot holes. It's a really dumb film when analyzed. Interstellar is the cinematic achievement, but I can't really get over Anne Hathaway's speech about love and uh, how like the plans to the spaceship are transmitted via Morse code on a, on a watch. I'm like, what? <laughs> Dunkirk, another cinematic masterpiece in the theaters, but I don't think Nolan's time-shifting angle there that he does really serve the narrative, to be honest. And I, you know, a film critic, Dan Merle, agrees with me on that point. Uh, I'd cite his review of the film. And then Tenet, huge, complicated relationship with that film. I think... Again. We saw that the night we got engaged. Oh, know, yeah. At wow. a drive-in movie theater. No one's been with us every step of the way. Yeah. Um, Tenet is 
this labyrinthian espionage action sci-fi movie that, like a lot of his other movies, when analyzed, when put under a mic microscope, it doesn't need all the twists and turns. It really is simple. So for it to masquerade as something bigger, I have some problems with it. I still don't know if I love or hate Tenet. Who knows? No one knows. It's a pincer movement. Who knows? <laughs> um, so I think Nolan, he really needed a win for me. Not that his other movies post- Inception haven't been wins, but I feel like he hasn't returned to the success of that initial 2000s run and he's back, baby. This is his talkiest film. Mm. It's his longest film, but I think it might be one of his best. I don't think it beats out Inception or The Prestige or The Dark Knight, but to be number four in his filmography, in a filmography as impressive as his, is uh, quite the feat. Mm -hmm. No one's back. The fanboys are back. I'm back. No, we also. I was going to remind you. We also got to see a Q and A with Christopher Nolan. We saw Dunkirk right. on a special film screening, um, and his wife did a Q and A too, which was really cool. Yeah, and oh, I didn't even have the whole discussion. So another reason I kind of soured on Nolan too was how he more or less wanted to force people to go back to the theaters to see Tenet. Like way before a vaccine, way before it was objectively safe to mm -hmm. return, I really had some ethical problems with what Nolan was doing there. Mm -hmm. And for Tenet of all movies, if if he wanted people to come back for this movie, perhaps. <laughs> like I'd get it. But not for Tenet. I mean, even <laughs> if you like Tenet to risk your life like that before vaccines, that's a whole other discussion. Mm -hmm. Let's not get into it. Leading up to this pod, I knew the book was going to be an endeavor. But <laughs> I almost I almost enjoy that. Like, we put so much time into this book compared to other books yeah. that to see it on screen, and the movie is basically the book, right? The, the movie is the book. Yeah. The book goes into Oppenheimer's cancer and death. The movie does not show that. But it's basically the same thing. So to, to invest that much time in a book and to see a movie as masterful as it is, it gives reason to why we keep doing this podcast. I mean, it really is fulfilling to read a good book and then to watch a movie that is a perfect adaptation. I don't think you could have a more meticulously researched and precise film adaptation as this would you agree i mean it, it's i do agree and dylan actually thank you so much for expressing interest in this because this is probably one of those books that i would have started and three years later probably wouldn't have finished so having the deadline of finishing it before the movie was awesome like it still took a long time and it was stressful i only finished the book about a week ago but it really did push me to read this and yeah. and i have a really different respect like level of respect for robert oppenheimer so i'm yeah it's it's an experience that you pushed us to have <laughs> yeah it was a it was a monster read actually uh, monk's book i read about i don't know 25 pages a day just so i could keep on to it um i don't think i've shared this with you but i have adult attention deficit disorder I was diagnosed oh. when I was about 20, 21. I've, I've got it actually mm -hmm. quite bad. And it's very hard being a history student and having to mm -hmm. just consume just tons and tons of information and not just consume mm -hmm. it, but you have to really synthesize what you've, what you've learned. 
and then turn it back out. And I didn't read fiction or literature for uh, my entire time as an undergrad or, or a graduate student just because that was not my major. So I, largely that I did that in high school or I did that after I got my master's. So this, I hadn't actually been at this pace. I used to read probably about 17 or 20,000 pages a year uh, for several years because I developed a, a way to, to read where I could cope with my disorder. But I hadn't done that. Work has been so crazy lately. I hadn't done that in about two years. So I've only been reading, I don't know, like 1,500 or 2,000 pages a year, which is really low for me. So to get back in this habit of reading 25 pages mm. a day was really... Um, really quite, I, I liked getting back into it. And then, of course, you need the, to compress what you read so that you don't have these these huge gaps. Uh, like if you'd read half of The Razor's Edge and then you read right. the last half of The Razor's Edge, a year later, it would it would lose its effectiveness. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that with us and thanks for challenging yourself as well for getting through that second book of reference material. <laughs> um, I think that... This is so I read a anecdote that Christopher Nolan was gifted a book of speeches by Robert Oppenheimer after Tenet by Robert Pattinson. And so there was a quote in Tenet by Robert Robert Oppenheimer and and that's why Pattinson gave Nolan this book of speeches and that so interested Nolan that he picked this book up and started to develop this storyline in his mind. And I think that after watching the movie, it's so clear that Nolan read this book at least once, if not most likely twice or three times, because there were so many details that were not really, they didn't need any context, but if you'd read the book, you would notice them. And there was this one little moment that was so golden for me that really highlighted how much time I think Nolan put into this book and studying his life, which is when we see the sad trajectory of Jean Tatlock, his mistress, and the debate of whether or not she committed suicide or was possibly murdered by the FBI or maybe the communists, we don't mm. know. And during this sort of drawn out scene, when we find out that she's dead, there's a glimmer in one shot of a black gloved hand holding her head under the water in her bathtub. And it only happens once. There are a couple different yeah. sort of versions it. of what you see. But that one detail just sort of screamed like Nolan loved this book and really put time into understanding the history and the, the gray areas of this narrative as well and what we do know and what we don't know. Um, so I, I just appreciate that journey that he took us on as not only audience members, but also readers of the book. Oh, absolutely. I, well, I remember that being uh, insinuated in American Prometheus. <clears throat> right. uh, this, this is a possibility of something that had happened. And I don't want to uh, question anything that Bird and his partner, um, Sherwin, I think is, was the other author's name. They worked mm. on that book for something like 20 years. It was an enormous amount of research. And, and um, uh, Sherwin had interviewed people from the Manhattan Project who were still alive uh, back in 1980 and 19, in, in the late 1970s. You know, Frank, Frank Oppenheimer was, was still alive. And if you go mm. into the, the back of American Prometheus, you'll see some 
some interviews in the works cited section that that'll really blow your mind. Uh, that didn't come up in in Monk's book either. He he didn't feel like it was it was worth citing, or he didn't feel like it was a relevant theory. It's thick. I I remember it being thick, and a lot of it was uh, was based on original interviews. Which, as as a historian, that's that's always what you want to do your research on is is interviews you conduct yourself. I was really impressed with it. Agreed. And it's tough to make something as meticulously researched as the film Oppenheimer is not feel stuffy, overloaded, and boring. So the first big piece of analysis I wanted to get into with the movie is the editing by Jennifer Lame. Uh, She also edited uh, Marriage Story, which we've talked about before on the pod. Love that movie. Uh, Edited Tenet as well. What a breakneck three hours. I could not believe how fast this movie flew by. And I am such a stickler for runtime. The minute a movie crosses the two and a half hour mark, my brain just automatically gets fatigued no matter the film. But this flew by. And I will say, but I know you experienced this, Laura, The first 20 minutes are a little bit wonky in terms of what it throws at you and the pacing because you are literally thrown into it as Oppenheimer in his years as a student. Scenes are not longer than like 30 seconds. I mean, it just really goes, most of it's a montage in that first 20 minutes. And I was thinking to myself, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. We have three hours of this. But the brilliance of it is that it is all set up to get you into the the pacing of the film because it has so much to cover that you need to have that type of pacing for it to cover it all, right? This would be a five-hour movie if it wasn't cut like that. So I think those beginning 20 minutes were a necessary evil to get you into the mode. So by... Like like getting you into his brain. Exactly. Because a lot of it is just seeing... I was reminded of the movie Tree of Life from the beginning because you get to see these very close-up sort of physical reactions and movements that Oppenheimer is kind of playing in his head. Yes, and, and like I, intercut with shots of nature and the cosmos yeah, and space. and his insomnia kind of goes into that. And I think you start to get in... That serves for you to get into his headspace and that really like ramps you up into the rest of the story no i completely agree actually i like the the opening 20 30 minutes and i like how you described it as wonky because that's kind of how i saw oppenheimer's first 25 30 years on the planet as being just kind of wonky and just not really knowing who he is and where he's going and what he's doing you know he's a chemistry major at harvard and then he jumped to physics and went to England and nobody in England really wanted him there. And they were just like, oh, you need to go study in Germany. And half of it was, we got to get this guy out of here. You know, he didn't really fit in anywhere. And I, I kind of liked the, the way that Nolan was editing that really choppy and then going through his youth and then the cut to the uh, particles, the atoms that were uh, the, the electrons that were spinning around the atoms just really fast is sort of getting you like a subatomic idea of, of what was in his, his mind all the time. That kind of reminded me of, uh, uh, the queen's gambit when uh, when she's laying in bed and she's seeing the chess pieces up on the ceiling move around 
and you're sort of let in on on what the character is thinking i i really enjoyed that opening and as far as the pacing is concerned it didn't feel like three hours to me it felt like a solid two no. um, but i i never left the theater and and i didn't see anybody leave the theater either and he was he's playing a trick on you it's his editing and it's in the conjunction with the soundtrack and the first time i noticed it was in the dark night when my wife and i went to go see it opening night and there's a whole backstory to my i have a story about batman begins that i'm not going to get into but i was really shocked by it I didn't go because i did i thought it was going to be like the old batman you know but mm -hmm. in the dark night i guess it was about 90 minutes into the movie and i was like when is the music going to stop because you're yeah. just you're just used to the the tense music going for about 20 minutes and then you have a resting period and then you have tense music going for about 20 minutes and then you have a resting period and nolan wasn't doing that in the dark night he just let the music just go and i was afraid to move the, the leave the theater because i i mm -hmm. felt like there was something impending happening and i realized oh that's during the screening i realized oh shit i'm I'm here for real. I I I can't. He's doing this on purpose, and mm. and I can't remember the last time I had like a, a revelatory experience about editing and sound and <laughs> and soundtrack while I was watching a movie for the first time. And of course, he used it again in the Prestige. He does it in the Dark Knight Rises. Is not too successful with that, but he does it in Interstellar, uh, and of course, Tenet. That never stops in Tenet either. And so I now that I knew what I was going into, I'm like, okay, I'm in for the Nolan experience. It's going to be quick uh, montage editing on an Eisensteinian scale. And it's just going to mm -hmm. have a relentless soundtrack, which is pushing you towards the end. And I was afraid. Um, I didn't know how the film was structured because I like going to a movie completely blanked out, not knowing what's going to go on. I was mm -hmm. afraid that once Trinity happened, then the movie was going to just be achingly slow and I've heard on other podcasts that have been released in the last three, four days that some people did uh, get that experience that after Trinity, they just thought the rest of the movie was a drag. And I can't see their point of view. I was just as enraptured uh, with the law and order ending for that last hour as I was in the first two. Mm -hmm. And yeah. to those people, I would say, read the book because <laughs> you would have been prepped. <laughs> right. Or to those people, I wouldn't even talk to those people. Anyone who says the second out, the third hour is slow, it's like we have nothing in common in terms of it's our tastes. So, yeah, no, it's so interesting, Dylan. You're talking about the the editing again because you're right. There was no point, I think, when my heart wasn't racing. Yes. There was certainly an increase, and I was like, I was sitting in the theater, like it was so physical those moments right up until the Trinity dropped and exploded. I, I mean, I my heart yes. was racing. And I don't think that I've ever sat in a theater and, and like been physically aware of how tense and yeah. anxious I was. So there was that. And then again, to the people who would say that the, the third hour is kind of slow, there is this second spike in blood pressure when you're watching him sort of wrap up the interviews with his hearing and he starts to experience that explosion again um right. just as he had experienced sort of receiving the news that the bomb had actually dropped on a civilian city and you get sort of the 
the flash again and you see all of his flashbacks of people sort of turning into paper and like your blood pressure goes right back up again it's yeah. so intense and i think it's part of the movie is to demonstrate it doesn't matter how many times like you hear the news or that sort of bomb is dropped like it's always a big deal and even dealing with like the trauma of not being there but being part of the team that created it and sort of brought it into the world that idea of like prometheus giving humanity this new type of knowledge and technology right. is As always a martyr. yeah is always intense and traumatic and and your blood pressure is going to go up like yeah. that was incredible i didn't know that my body could do that a second time and then it did and i was like oh my god this movie can't do anything more to me than it's already done like i'm so overwhelmed that that lead up <laughs> to trinity goosebumps i was sweating yeah. and i think that sequence alone has secured jennifer lame's editing nomination uh, right. for the oscars and i think the scene right after the bomb drops with Oppenheimer addressing the crowd at Los Alamos, and then he has a panic attack, that sequence has secured Nolan's directorial nom. Um, talk about a complete switch into the realm of horror. I mean, mm. that with mm. that sequence is terrifying. And again, we've already talked about this, but the function of both the book and the movie is to ex explain what happened after, right? Because... The whole lead up to the dropping of the bomb, Oppenheimer is adamant that America needs to create a bomb before the Nazis do, right? Because mm -hmm. us having a bomb is better than what the Nazis could do with it. After it's dropped, then it becomes real. Then Oppenheimer ha finally has a chance to switch his line of thinking because all anyone can really think about up to the lead, to the lead of that is like, what will, the, what will, will our enemies do? But now that the bomb is dropped by America, now there's a whole other element of like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Like I've become death, destroyer of worlds. And with the end of one war, it's kick-started the Cold War. Everyone kind of knows about the Cold War, but I think a great plus of this film, especially, is that it reminds you of that it, it directly started right after the end of World War II. Um, so yeah, I love that switch in character. I love that revelation that Oppenheimer has. Played brilliantly by Killian Murphy. It's Killian, right? Not Cillian? Yes. Uh, he was just on Mark Maron's podcast, so it was Killian. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's lots of things to get into. Like First, I, I yeah. completely agree with you. The, when he's experiencing the, the bomb blast in the, in the security hearing, I, I thought that was really well done because that's that's when his life explodes and it's it was taking the yeah. the political and making it extremely personal i, I thought that was done yeah. really well in terms of the changing morality it's so difficult to take these arguments and put them on film without getting yeah. into a very preachy message movie mm. And the, the construct of the time is not very well understood now. And there's a lot of nuance that goes into understanding the weapon. Werner Heisenberg was one of the smartest physicists on the planet. And if the Americans had had him, he probably would have been leading Los Alamos. 
and here he was working in Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and Niels Bohr was in Denmark under Nazi occupation and they had just assumed because like Oppenheimer had said in the last hour of the film this is the secret this is not a secret this information is published and it's just a matter of putting this information together and experimenting on it and coming out with a result and that was one yeah. thing that American Prometheus did very well in the book and I thought Oppenheimer did in in the film his meeting with Truman was completely two trains heading in a different direction when Truman says the Russians yeah. will never get this bomb. That is an absurd statement. And it's very clear that Truman and his administration and the people who were in charge did not understand that anybody could have made this bomb. The luck was mm. the the ideological constraints of National Socialism did not allow anyone uh, who had their finger on resources to commit to the idea of we need to fund a science created by Jews. And that was a non-starter. The other problem that you had was if you took every R&D project in Nazi Germany from the six years of the war, if you included their V1 program, their V2 program, everything at Penamunde, uh, their laser-guided munitions, their, everything that they ever did, and you put it the 262 Messerschmitt program that created the first jet engine, if you threw that all into the same box, that was not one billion U.S. dollars in 1945. And here, the Manhattan Project created two bombs at a t- total cost of two billion dollars, and that was one project. Pinamunde had maybe forty thousand uh, people working there, most of them slave workers. And here, the Manhattan Project had three hundred physicists, a thousand other scientists, engineers, and army personnel, and what have you. They had 40,000 people working uh, in between uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, and California. And the grand total with everyone in Tennessee and everyone in Washington was 125,000 people. This effort, and most of them didn't know what the hell they were doing. You know, so the, the idea was that Germany was ahead. And they didn't know until Colonel Dash, who is brilliantly played in the movie by Casey Affleck, in this absolute scene stealer in which Casey Affleck shows up out of the blue and then dominates Killian Murphy's acting style for, for that entire scene, which is what needed to happen for us to understand that he was in true danger in discussing uh, what he had reported to Ellington about Ellington the Mm -hmm. day before he is in true danger and Affleck completely runs the board. And well, Colonel Dash was the guy that Groves, had said, I need to get this guy out of here or he's going to target Oppenheimer and I'm going to lose the entire project and and its leader. So Grove sent him to Italy uh, with information from Enrico Fermi on trying to find uh, the scientists who were working on uh, the Italian slash uh, Nazi project in in because uh, those scientists were in, in Allied-occupied Italy. He was the one who went there and investigated it and found out no, the the Nazi bomb is non-viable. That was in mid-1944 or early 1944. Mm. And so that's when Groves finds out. So uh, the the assertion, one of the film's assertions of, of, you know, I was sent to, you know, out of the U.S. to Italy uh, just to get him away from Oppenheimer. And it sounded like a plot, Mm. right? 
Well, it was it was kind of a plot. I mean, Groves was clearly trying to save Oppenheimer, but it's more than that. Groves was trying to save the project. And Dash wasn't just going out on a milk run. Dash was going into occupied territory to find out this information, which was really needed to to gain the focus of the program. And of course, Groves didn't tell anybody. He didn't even tell Oppenheimer that the Nazis didn't have the bomb. Not that it would have mattered. They still right. worked on it after they found out from Niels Bohr when he was, you know, you could make a movie about his journey and how he was ushered out of Denmark, stuffed in the back of a plane with a tank of oxygen. You know, that's a crazy story in of itself. Uh, so that wasn't until yeah. Uh, yeah. late 1944, early, early 1945. I think it's interesting, like you said, these aren't easily adapted ideas into visual mediums, right? Yeah. Like these aren't conversations that easily you can just do like, you know, the plot gets us from A to B to C to D. Um, and I think a lot of that is reflected in from Oppenheimer's personality. They keep reiterating that he is all about theory Right. And he has a really hard time transferring theory into physical experiments. That's like constantly in the book and the movie that is constantly brought up and his inability to understand the political workings and the war plans, really the, the things that Groves has a really good understanding of because he is a general and he can wheel and deal with these types of people and I think like that's really where we get the pinnacle of the bomb, like you're talking about. Like, finally, Oppenheimer is forced to confront this physical reality of what's happened, and that's where his sort of the tragedy comes in in his right. in his life. Because then we have to see him make this huge pivot into not only what have I done, but the the fallout starts coming from there of all the all the naivete that he had just trying to do a good thing because he saw that his people being the jewish people in, in europe were being targeted and that was sort of his theory of like i need to get to the bomb first to protect these people but then you see all of the the background stuff that was running that he didn't understand and he was trying to do the best that he could but ultimately yeah we see that his his flaw, his hamartia, that sort of thing was that he was just that simple thinking. He was such a brilliant scientist, but he just didn't have the understanding of what was actually going on um, in terms, again, of like politics, the war, people. He had blind spots, um, certainly in himself as well. But but I think that's why it's, yeah, it's it's crazy to see on the, on the big screen. Yeah. yeah. He was politically naive, and I, I thought Nolan did a really good job of, of getting Murphy to direct that. And and he was, uh, like you say, he was kind of cloistered and had blinders on. And one of the, one of the great things about the film was it shows these two two episodes with Louis Strauss that sunk him uh, when he was really arrogant and playing a know it all and embarrassed Strauss at a, a public hearing about should we or should we not export isotopes. And which was a, a huge deal at the time, and Oppenheimer was the final word on it because his his word was law. It didn't it didn't matter uh, what Strauss thought about it, and Oppenheimer had to had to show that in the hearing. And then Oppenheimer apparently turned away from Strauss when Strauss was trying to introduce him to his his son and his mm -hmm. daughter in law. 
And, you know, you know why Oppenheimer did that, I don't know. If he just had it with Strauss up to that point in time or just had no respect for Strauss or, or whatever. But, you know, to, to see those two elements in the film, when you have the turn in the third act, because what that was one of the wonderful things about the film was as I was watching the first two hours, I was really confused. I was like, why is Nolan painting Strauss as a nice guy? Yes. That was really yes. confusing to me. And we had the it same wasn't thought. until after Trinity, yeah, when it dawned on me, oh, that's what Nolan's going to do. And I thought it was just brilliant, and I couldn't wait for it. And it was great when it came. But those those two episodes uh, were were really well done. They And he, he didn't have to put those in, uh, but he right. chose to because of the foreshadowing it gave. Yeah. And all those episodes done practically, too, of his anxiety... There's apparently, according to Nolan, he said there is zero VFX shots, which doesn't make sense because there are clearly some VFX shots when he's thinking about the potential futures of nuclear weapons being used, like the ending shot of the planet with the fire. Like, that that has to be VFX. Anyways, those episodes done practically, very impressive. And, you know, you were talking about Oppenheimer not necessarily being politically adept, and a great supporting character. We'll get to Straws in a sec because Robert Downey Jr. Holy shit. Oh but my God. A oh supporting God. performance that I want to hear more love for is David Krumholtz, you know, the lead elf from Santa Claus, Tim Allen. Um, <laughs> David Krumholtz played Isidore Robbie, uh, one of Oppenheimer's uh, good friends. And he even has a line of saying, like, you're not a politician, but that's where you are now. That's what the Manhattan Project has led you down to this path of being a politician. And of course, yeah, he he's right. Oppenheimer is not equipped for the job of being a politician and spends the last third of the movie basically being tarred and feathered. That's what Kitty says uh, at this uh, at Strauss's uh, council. So I really loved Krumholtz's character and his yeah. performance. But Robert Downey Jr., he has the best supporting actor, I think, in the bag. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. I was completely blown away by his performance, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I think this might define him more than Iron Man, it's just because of the, the nuance that he yeah. shows on screen from going to uh, what you see him in the beginning as what you see him in the end, where you, you just really start out just really liking this guy and being charmed by this uh, wonderful performance. And then at the end of the film, you're like, I can't stand this character. He is such an asshole. And I thought that yeah. was brilliantly done by RDJ. I uh, completely agree. And again, going back to the joy of having read the book and knowing that he is not confirmed in the position that he's been nominated for. Secretary of Commerce, yeah. It feels so damn good when he's sitting in his little break room outside <laughs> of the Senate floor and he's just like, do we have the votes? And his, ass his assistant says, yeah, I think you'll scrape by. And you're like, he's not gonna scrape by it feels so good it's like you get to be there and then when you you watch him sort of let the news settle that he hasn't he he's lost by like two votes or three. something like yeah. three votes and he's assembled the press and he's basically set himself up to be absolutely humiliated which is exactly what he was most fearful of like he even says that like you know, is this going to be the pinnacle of my career or is this going to be the day that I am 
like politically ruined politically ruined and you just know it's so satisfying knowing that history going into the movie and he does a brilliant like you're saying like you can see in his face he just shuts down he just shuts down and leaves the room completely humiliated it feels so good yeah and reading the book we know that he he didn't recover after that after he was denied by the senate Mm -hmm. his career was over yeah um i don't know dylan if this so this is something that i did a lot of thinking of during the movie it wasn't something that i picked up on the book but i was reminded at so many instances actually of the narrative in hamilton the musical and then also behind that because i have like a whole thesis going in my head about how hamilton is basically an adaptation of shakespeare's hamlet because hamlet is basically like the narrative of to act or not to act or and also when to act do you you know there are some people who are quick to act and there are some people who are slow to act and of course in hamilton we have Hamilton, who is quick to act and always thinks that he's right. And then we have Burr, who's very slow to act. And he likes to see where thing, where the wind is going to blow before he makes a decision. And I love how there's that final twist at the end of Hamilton, where then Aaron Burr is the one to act too quickly and ends up regretting murdering yes. Hamilton. He's the one holding the knife. Yeah, the gun. Also. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then I I started to see so many parallels between that narrative and Oppenheimer and Straws, and even even in little tiny details, like when Oppenheimer meets Jean Tatlock at the party, she even says like, "Has my life changed?" What what is the word she uses? But basically, she says like, "Has my life changed?" And that's sort of the way that Hamilton and Angelica meet. So then, mm. then it sort of set me up to Good start point. seeing these, these patterns and parallels. And then finally, like Oppenheimer is the one to pull back in the very end. And he's trying to stop that train with everything that he has. And Straws just comes in and like, <laughs> like basically politically assassinates him. Yeah. And then I think it's really interesting too, because neither of them die in real life during this ordeal. But then I thought, I, w- I started to think like, wow, has Oppenheimer been playing the longer game? Because he outlasts Straws and gets to sort of see his downfall. But well, then, and Straws even says like, look, I've made him a martyr. This is exactly what he wanted. Which, yeah. And I think it's really interesting how we're seeing these sort of shifts and perspectives of these massive political figures where even I think Hamilton did a lot to almost resurrect Aaron Burr in a way, right? Like we kind of got that opposite perspective of what he was chasing and how he felt about Hamilton. And it's interesting to see these like these shifts yeah. in perspective. And I think like Straws is I mean, he ultimately kind of went down during his time, but but it's interesting to see like what motivates people and his vindictiveness didn't end. Like he he got Oppenheimer kicked out of Princeton. He ultimately did have like their house taken away like he didn't stop yeah so yeah i don't know i i don't know if i'm saying anything specific i just think it's really it's so interesting to watch hamlet and that narrative keep resurrecting itself into these fresh contexts well i'm not going to get into the parallel with hamilton which i think is interesting but i've got my own opinions on aaron burr that i don't think is is good to bring up here uh (laughs) 
in, well, in, you probably know more about him. Yeah. Well, I don't, <laughs> well, I don't know. Major. Well, I don't know about that. I just, I just, I, I just have a different opinion about Burr. Um, I got a little bit of a different opinion about Strauss, which is, uh, you know, this was a loyal public servant. Uh, look at Strauss's Wikipedia page. This guy served his country for 20 something years. So there were some people that were sore with him because he was a, he was an admiral in reserve and he was wearing civilian clothing because he had a civilian job. And this is where, when most people who served in the military, you know, they, they wore the uniform every day, you know, Colin Powell was national security advisor and he wore his uniform to the white house every day for four years. And there were some people that were sore about that. Um, Strauss had had really done his duty on even on the Atomic Energy Commission in making these recommendations. He was very knowledgeable, but the man shot himself in the foot. Uh, and to put things in perspective, yeah. like and I I wasn't really familiar with the vote in the Senate until I saw it in the film, and then I went and went home that night and pulled up Wikipedia and started going through it. That it's pretty amazing that Strauss misses that confirmation and i know in the film they said something you know there hasn't been a cabinet member that hasn't been approved since 1927 or something about that that's 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 not even the issue since 1939 from 1939 to about 1972 america had a bipartisan foreign policy and you had effectively democrats in sheep's clothing okay so eisenhower was a republican almost in name only the real reason why he chose to be a democrat was first he he disliked mm -hmm. unions as as someone in the army he hated unions and the unions are the backbone of the democratic party particularly in the 1950s and 40s the other side of it was he he had to distinguish himself against truman and he didn't want to run in a democratic primary against someone who had the record that truman had Truman had been president for four years. And if you look at his record now, it's like, oh, my God, hit the ground running, dropped the bomb, ended the war, right. recognized mm -hmm. Israel, integrated the army. It's it's just boom, 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 boom. If you read uh, the biography of him by David McCullough, you, you'll want to put him in the top 10 best presidents ever. And Ike didn't want to be in the running with someone like that. But mm -hmm. he wasn't he wasn't really this. He wasn't like a Joe McCarthy conservative republican that wasn't ike's background so the fact that strauss loses his nomination in a senate full of democrats and and a republican party that is split really because back in those days uh, the the republican party was split between these this these huge section of moderates of who we used to call rockefeller republicans and and then your your quote-unquote you know Shiite Republicans is what we used to call them in college. The fact that he loses the nomination like mm. that—I mean, that—that's not good. That—that's really quite bad. That he—that's—that's that's a death knell for someone who's in public service. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Thanks for that background, because yeah, again, like we really only know what is in the book and the movie, so we really appreciate you taking us down that road. Although in both the book and the movie, I love the JFK name drop. Right. Massachusetts own. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was like just chef's kiss of like, oh yeah, a young senator trying to make, trying a, to make a name for himself. John F. Kennedy. <laughs> Kennedy. Yeah. So it, it's the chef's kiss. And I, will, I think the movie does the whole Strauss communicating to Borden potentially 
to sneak the FBI file. I think it's more clear cut in the film than it is in the book. I that was one of the instances where I kind of I lost the thread a bit of like where exactly the FBI file came from, who Borden was. So it was great for that whole ordeal to be explained a little bit more mm-hmm. um, to me. Yeah, the rivalry is so rich, and it reminds me of two two films. So. The first one is Amadeus. It's also similar to Hamilton and Hamlet in that there's this lifelong rivalry that kind of ruins the careers of both throughout, although Amadeus would go on to be much more famous than uh, the other character, Soleri, I think, right? Soleri. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that movie, but also Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. Both The Aviator and Oppenheimer actually have a similar structure in that, so in The Aviator, Howard Hughes' big accomplishment happens at the two-hour mark. That's a three-hour movie as well. And then the remaining third is court proceedings. And Mm -hmm. uh, in The Aviator, in the final third, Alan Alda just shows up for that final hour as the instigator, as Howard Hughes' rival. The performance was so good, he was nominated for an Oscar as both as Robert Downey Jr. is basically confirmed to be nominated at this point. The only difference really between the, how the rivalries are presented is you're shown straws throughout the whole movie, right, in the time-jumping fashion. It's a Nolan movie, of course. You have to have that, whereas The Aviator is much more straightforward. But I think the one-up that this movie has is that magic trick you are talking about, Dylan, earlier, of it's all set up for Strauss's turn. You do like him, you view him as the sympathetic character, and then when there is that heel turn, you realize just how sadistic and vindictive Strauss has been and is going to be towards Oppenheimer. I think it's it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It almost makes me wish I hadn't read uh, American Prometheus before I saw the film because there were there were people in the audience who who obviously had not read the book, like maybe in the 500 people that were in the audience, how many do you think read the book? Like I might have been the only one, maybe, maybe two or three other people. And there was an audible gasp in the audience when, when it comes out that Strauss is this bad guy. And as, as far as the FBI file that was leaked, I don't, I think that's a like Rick Monk doesn't even know who did that. But what Monk does say is after the security hearing, uh, Strauss had, the transcript of the security hearing because they had a they had a, a a transcriber in the room writing down everything and he had a copy of that and he leaked it to Henry Luce who owned Time magazine and then it was just everywhere you know uh, Time magazine I think published it into a book and it you know I wasn't a bestseller but it was it was available for anyone to read wow. and everything was in that damn transcript like uh, his affair with Gene Tatlock was in that transcript and it was just uh, it was just embarrassing, you know. It, everyone knew his dirty laundry, and and what what did it really relate to his security clearance? Nothing, zero. That's yeah. one of the best scenes in the movie when he's being grilled about his affair. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of uncomfortable uh, actually when it first started, but it it I managed to by the time that scene was over, thirty seconds later, I managed to to come down off the mountain and say, okay, this is. This is gonna work. When when Murphy is sitting there in the in the the room nude, I was yeah. really having a hard time with it. I was thinking, ah, oh, this is just a bit much. And even when when Florence Pugh shows up nude, 
I was really, really having a hard time with it. Uh, but the reaction between the eyes between Emily Blunt, who plays Kitty, Kitty yeah. and then Florence, like that's what sold me. That's what would really put it over the line. But without that final shot, I don't, I don't think I would have bought it. Right. Yeah. There were a few giggles when it was just Killian Murphy naked in the theater, but I think, I loved that. Well, yeah, I, I love it too. Yeah. The turn. I really didn't think Nolan had it in him to do something that hardcore. I mean, Nolan is a great filmmaker, but he is a little prudish when it comes to sex. And for that, especially with Gene's character to be front and center, I think is a very mature, very edgy way to show Oppenheimer's complicated history, right? He he did have affairs. He was not faithful. His relationship with Kitty was complicated, but one that was strong despite also Kitty's problems with alcohol. Yeah, I thought that that was something... Uh, to be honest, Emily Blunt was a surprise casting choice for me. I, I don't think of her as like a massively talented actor, maybe just because of what I've seen from her. Um, I don't know. She's not my favorite. I, Edge that's, of Tomorrow? Sure, Hello. okay. But like, <laughs> no, she's yeah. not one of my favorites. Yeah, no, but I, I get but honestly, her performance in this movie definitely made me take her more seriously. I thought the way that she portrayed alcoholism and the complicated feelings that she had toward Oppenheimer was really nuanced and effective because you could tell that she was angry with Oppenheimer for multiple reasons. Like she, she had an idea that he had cheated on her, but it can't feel good to sit through a hearing in front of seven other men kind of literally and figuratively dressing him down. That cannot feel good. Um, I think she was mad at Oppenheimer for treating her like a housewife when I think that she had a lot of other things going for her. She was obviously an extremely smart person and successful career woman, <laughs> even though that term is kind of derogatory. Before she met Oppenheimer, she had been divorced twice already or had been married twice. One husband had died. So I think she was angry with him for a lot of things. And that was obviously put in or went into her alcoholism, but she was still so faithful. And I think that that's another turn in the movie that we feel so good about when she's sitting in that interview session and she just sort of like masks her alcoholism completely and sits there and answers things clearly. She shoots back all of the lawyer's questions. She's supportive of her husband 100%. All of that was like very impactful and as successful as you feel in that moment with her, it's also incredibly sad because you see how much that she's been put through and it's that complicated relationship with her husband and yeah. and ultimately her life because you see that she's not going to leave Oppenheimer like this is a choice that she's making to stay but it's also you know it leads her further down the road of alcoholism that I don't think that she ever really dealt with or mm-hmm. sought treatment for right no I really appreciated I, I like Emily Blunt uh, but I really appreciated the the improvement of the character if you'd seen Fat Man and Little Boy she's played by Bonnie Bedelia most famous as playing, you know, John McLean's wife in Die Hard. And she's just a housewife who's an alcoholic. And there's there's no mention of this this complicated past of, of her being a, a chemist and a biologist. And she was she was really I just do not think that they should have had kids. And their kids would probably would agree with that. You know, they were just not meant um 
to have offspring. And I really appreciated Nolan putting that in the film when he takes yeah. his, his, his daughter over to, or his son over to uh, Chevalier's house, which is another story in right. of itself. And he said, like, you know, we're just bad parents. You know, I'm sorry, if you could just do this for us in the short term, we're just bad parents. And he admits it to himself. You know, he wasn't a perfect person, but Nolan even puts that in the film too. You know, when, when you've got people on the, on the uh, security hearing saying, you know, he just wants to come in and talk about his life. And we don't want to hear about his life. We just want to hear about this one incident so we can discredit him and move on. And he wants to defend, he feels like he's defending his life. I thought that was absolutely what, what Oppie was trying to do. And how can you understand me if you don't understand my life? And, and that includes my wife, which is why my wife is here and involved in, in this situation. You know, Kitty had it bad. Jean had it worse. But, you know, these are very complicated people, very nuanced people. That's what I like about the film. And, and that's what's compelling about the story. You know, Jean Tatlock didn't just lose her husband. She lost her husband in Republican Spain, where he was killed on the front line by fascists. And she was wrapped up into that, into that tragedy, into that grief. And here comes Oppenheimer, who is just as intelligent as her previous husband. And she just couldn't process her grief, I think, in her relationship to him, which is why she was so unstable. And I completely think that uh, that it was suicide, uh, unfortunate suicide. And that's another thing that, that Nolan does brilliantly in the film. When you do supporting acting casting, the one that I think about the most actually is Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love where she comes in at the last five minutes of the mm. film and she just closes it and she gets an Oscar. And that's what you want out of your supporting actor. You, you know, you want your supporting actor to, yeah. to turn the scene to where the director needs it to go and to bring it an emphasis that everyone will remember. You don't want everyone saying, Oh, that's Florence Pugh. That's not the point of her being in the movie. The point of her being in the movie is to emphasize what Gene Tatlock meant to Oppenheimer. And she meant an incredible amount. And I think that he did a very good job. Yeah. I mean, that love scene, as awkward as the love scene is, really does connect those two people. It connects their intellectualism with their sexuality. Yeah. And Nolan mm -hmm. has an enormous history of being really criticized about not having well-rounded female characters and not having female oh, yeah. characters that are involved in this film. And they said that about Tenet, which I completely disagree with. And they say that about Dunkirk, which makes me laugh because there were no women soldiers at Dunkirk. It's just a, yeah. a fact, you know, but I, I thought that it was a, a great step forward from him. I understand what you're saying about Anne Hathaway and her monologue in Interstellar. I agree that I, you know, I was in the theater thinking, oh, well, okay, that was not done as well as it could have been done. Um, but I really don't agree that the female characters in this film don't mean anything. I, th I thought they were very well written, very well deployed. And yeah. the criticism, of course, is that it's that it's it's meant to reinforce a man and a man's perspective and a man's history. And I understand that, but I don't know how you're going to tell Oppenheimer's story uh, without without uh, those women supporting him from behind. And as we all know, behind every successful man, there's always a woman that's better <laughs> than him.
Yes. Right? Preach. No, yeah. I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think like in this context, this is Oppenheimer's story. And to understand the context of what happened after the war and throughout the development of the bomb, these things happened to him. And you do have to place that in the context of Oppenheimer. But I think like there's, inc- there's an incredible respect especially going back to that scene when we find out that Gene's either committed suicide or has been possibly murdered, where he goes into the woods and is like in the fetal position crying. Like he he also understands how much these women mean to him, right? Like I mm-hmm. think that we see that he's aware that he's not perfect and he's found himself oh, yeah. in between these two people that he loves and respects maybe doesn't spend a lot of time around, but he's also, we see that it's because he doesn't understand sometimes how to be in those relationships. And I think that's another beautiful thing that comes through the movie. Like this era did not allow people to explore their sexuality or date a lot before you got married or date really before, or be married before you had kids and really understand what your relationship looked like and what the boundaries of those relationships were. And and I think that that really contributed to this confusion for Jean and for Oppenheimer because they, they did meet before either of them were married. Like they could have had a very interesting beautiful relationship at some point but i think because of the constrictions of the time it just it didn't allow them to have that and for you know we see in the movie and in the book we learn that kitty got pregnant before she was even divorced from her husband and you know it like that's what was sort of available to during the time as their choice was sort of to get married and that was it that was the end of the relationship between gene and Oppenheimer, I guess not the end, but the end of their acceptable relationship. Right. So I think that's something that comes through the movie too. Gosh, yeah. One of the things I want to comment on is that scene with Robert in the forest. And Kitty even has one of the best lines in the film, which again, it's not exactly subtle. Nolan hasn't been known for subtlety, but it's a great <laughs> line nonetheless when Kitty Kitty says you don't get to commit sin and then ask all of us to feel sorry for you when there are consequences. What a great metaphor to him committing the sin of creating the bomb. And just as Oppenheimer was not adept to really be uh, faithful and have solid relationships, he also probably wasn't ready, as we've already discussed, for the political conversations around dropping the bomb. That's why he had all the panic attacks after he dropped the bomb after there was this change of morality because now he's facing consequences and he's trying to redeem himself in a way by asking for uh, control of the world's um, use of atomic weaponry. And then that leads us to the start of the rivalry with Strauss because Strauss felt that that was an affront against him for Oppenheimer to want to take control. And of course, you have some other uh, elements in play as well. I will say the screenplay was excellent. Very Sorkin-esque mm-hmm. with constant dialogue. I think Nolan has a screenplay nomination in the bag. 
perhaps not a win, but definitely a nomination. This movie is almost entirely people talking in rooms, which is one of my favorite genres. Mm. I say that without irony. I love people in rooms talking about ethical dilemmas. Mm -hmm. And then something else that Nolan hasn't done before, sexiness. (laughs) When Gene had him read the Bhagavad Gita while... You know, getting on top of them. I mean, has Nolan ever gotten that hot before? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I, I was <laughs> I was sweating. I don't know about yeah. you two. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's really important to talk about that line with consequences because I read an interview with Christopher Nolan during his PR circuit for this movie. And he said that all of his movies have dealt with different kinds of consequences. And that with this narrative, it was the most intense and also the most immediate form of consequences that he had ever written about Mm -hmm. and i liked that because it totally is like oppenheimer sees so many consequences like all the way up until he's sort of pushed into heading this program and like if you're going to talk about consequences being the prometheus that brings atomic weaponry into humanity's arsenal that's like that is the ultimate consequence i think like that's this i think like when when christopher nolan put it in that context it made a lot of sense that he would go after a narrative like this Mm -hmm. because those are the things that he's interested in studying through his films yeah totally agree it was a good interview i don't remember where i can't cite it because i don't remember where i read it but (laughs) i completely agree um I've got four things to hit. The first is the fetal position in the forest has a tendency to, to be kind of corny to the audience and overdramatic. But if you had read American Prometheus, you would know that, as he says in the first 20 minutes of the film, he was pretty unstable as a youth, and he was pretty yeah. erratic. And he had, he had you know, been accused of almost trying to murder one of his professors, and, and he actually strangled one of his friends when there was a girl involved uh, on a train in Europe. You know, he was he was that type of person. So I, I completely uh, bought that scene, but I can see if someone had not read uh, the book, how they thought that would be, you know, Shatner-esque in terms of over uh, over dramatic. Um, yeah. In terms of dealing with your consequences, I thought that was very good encapsulation. In the documentary, there's on the Criterion channel right now, it's called The Day After Trinity. And there's a scientist from Los Alamos talking about how Oppenheimer had given a speech in the late 50s, and he was known for being this oratorical master. Oppenheimer was known for being this great person who wrote great speeches, but of course, as evidenced in the film, he was huge in the literature, and he learned language so that he could read literature. He learned Sanskrit so that he could read the Bhagavad Gita and the and the Vedas and the Upanishads in their original form so he wouldn't miss anything. You know, this is extremely intelligent yeah. person who understood the humanities to a great extent. And he gave a speech on consequences some, somewhat. He said physicists had known sin, and that should dictate the morality of their decisions in science. And this, this one scientist said, how dare Oppenheimer tell me that I know sin? I helped win the war. If you want to talk about sin, mm-hmm. why don't you go to Japan? and talk about sin i helped win the war wow. that that's who i am i don't want to hear about oppie's regrets and i thought that was very compelling i mean you are talking about patriots 
you are talking about people who stopped their lives so that they could save other lives. And, and the consequences of that, Oppenheimer never regretted his work and he was proud of his achievement. And he never said that he regretted Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but it doesn't mean that you, that you don't have regrets. If he could have found a way to win that war without killing 190,000 people, he would have done it. You know, Mm -hmm. but the American Prometheus vision in the theme of the film and the theme of the book takes you to those places, those uncomfortable places. You look at Winston Churchill, who was appointed prime minister, voted by a coalition. He was not elected. And Mm. his first term in parliament, he fought this massive war. He had saved Great Britain when so many in his own party just wanted to cut a deal with Hitler and walk. You know, so what if we lose the empire? At least we'll have Great Britain. And Churchill said no. And what happened to Churchill? Well, he was thrown out of office right while Potsdam was going on with uh, Mm. Clement Attlee uh, waiting in the wings to take his place to talk to Stalin and and Roosevelt uh, the minute the election results were, were turned in. He saved Britain and he was tossed out on his ass. And that goes back yeah. to that Promethean tragedy that is, is done so well. In terms of the Gita, I've had a dalliance with Hinduism in a former life. haha. And I read the <laughs> Bhagavad Gita and I was really surprised in Monk's book actually to... Monk actually went back to a someone who was fluent in Sanskrit and asked him to redo the translation of that specific stanza in which it's very actually Kantian, meaning Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher who who said, you know, you must do your mm-hmm. duty. And the Bhagavad Gita takes place during a war. And Oppenheimer was compelled by the by the story of the Gita of the well, this war is going on and we have to we have to do our duty. We can't like the army used to say, ours is not to reason why, ours is to do and die. And Aryuna is like, I can't believe I've got to kill all these people. And Krishna takes his multi-armed form with weapons are in each hand. That's why he's got all of these arms, so he can hold all these weapons. And he says, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which is now a gif on my iPhone. If I wanted to send it to anyone, just search Oppenheimer and that 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 gif comes up with those subtitles sure. on it. You know, yeah. uh, but that's actually not the whole story. The word in Sanskrit actually can be reinterpreted depending on how you use it. And it could mean time. And Interesting. Con- considering Nolan's experience with time from his first movies to his last movies and how each one is a different interpretation of time. And even this film, the way that it intercuts between these three storylines Trinity, the security hearing, Strauss's nomination, and then one of them stops after two hours. There's something deeper going on here. The destroyer of time is not the same as the destroyer of worlds. It it sounds like the same thing, but you're talking about all of the cosmos when you say time. You're talking about everything that exists, not just worlds. And it's it's pretty profound if you think about it in those terms. And I'm sure that Nolan has considered that. You know, I'm sure that he he's deft enough to understand that. Oh yeah. That thank you for sharing that. I had not come across that before. Um, 
But it reminds me of something else that I wanted to mention that I had read um, while preparing for this recording about how there are lots of scenes in black and white and there are lots of scenes in color. And that's one of the things that I think will draw me back to seeing this movie again because what I read was that Christopher Nolan had this idea that everything filmed in black and white was an objective scene. Mm -hmm. And then everything in color was someone's memory. So it's an interpretation of what happened. And that's certainly something that the book does. It, it, it sets you up to understand that this is a taken from either a diary or an interview or a an interview after the hearing interview, things like that. It, it really sets you up to understand that everybody has a different ter- interpretation, especially of the Chevalier affair. That's something that's sort of examined from every single angle, every single person right. who might have not even been in the room when that situation happened. A little too many angles for my taste, I will say. That did go on for <laughs> a while. Angles. That's just my personal taste. Sure. Continue. But but after I read that after we had seen the movie last night, And so it was really interesting for me. I want to go back and understand, like one of the most poignant moments is when Strauss is looking out the window and the objective scene is that he's looking out the window and watching Oppenheimer pick up Einstein's hat after it's blown off his head and giving it back. And Strauss in the color scene version is thinking that they're, you know, conspiring against him like Oppenheimer somehow turned Einstein away from him and really that was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back if you will yeah the straws (laughs) broke the camel's back in terms of having the scientific (laughs) thank you Dylan you're my biggest fan (laughs) in terms of of turning the whole scientific community against straws and that was sort of his final downfall but I loved that in another scene that's filmed in color, we get that conversation where Einstein is basically telling Oppenheimer, this is a moment. This is a big moment. And I, I had this moment when I was about your age and I sort of aged out of that moment and you're here now. And this is, so it was a completely, completely right. different tone of what had happened but i love that the the objective scene is just having that interaction between the two of them and then again like i just i want to go back and watch the movie again and sort of understand like that interplay between memory and everybody's angle and perspective on the memory and also just like what exactly happened if you were just a fly on the wall like that that whole idea of memory and time and how time passes and what we selectively remember from how time has passed, all of those things kind of fit into that idea of like destroyer of time and how things move forward, but not even in a time doesn't even happen in like a singularly singularly progressive way. Like sometimes it's fast and sometimes it's short. Right. We see all of those things in the movie. Right. And there's always two things going on at the same time. There's the objective truth. And then there's your baggage, what you bring to the table, and how you react. And not to get all cutesy and smarmy here, but the movie is about reactions. Both chemical, but then also how people deal with events that occur. So it's how Oppenheimer deals with the fallout of dropping of the bomb, and how Strauss deals with his misinterpretation 
of Einstein's reaction to him in that field by the pond there. In reality, Einstein was just having a crisis because Oppenheimer just revealed, hey, the world might come to an end right now. Yeah, no, I, mean, I get all that. It actually kind of reminded me of JFK, where I, you know, I spent two mm, years yes. trying to figure out, you know, what is Oliver Stone doing in JFK? And if I remember correctly, it's color is the present, uh, black and white is the past, and the grainy is basically what he thinks is the truth. Right. And trying to distinguish all of that going on at the same time is very difficult. And I would say inherently unsuccessful because as we know now, there's a lot of bullshit going on in JFK, which is decidedly not true. Uh, however, uh, after after reading 1,400 pages about Robert Oppenheimer's life in the Manhattan Project, I can tell you that most of what is in this film, and I'm in the high 90 percentile, is absolutely true. And I couldn't believe just how many facts were just jam-packed into every 90-second segment. It was crazy. Right. And we've mentioned this a few times, but it's nuts how easy-breezy this movie can be for the heavy subject material and for its three-hour runtime. I mean, we cannot overstate how fast this movie flies by. Mm -hmm. what, what an achievement. And with that... We're nearing our final thoughts. I, I know we could talk for hours more about no, I got this. another two pages of stuff we can go through. Oh, no. That's uh, unfortunately, you're going to have to okay. cherry pick. I'll... You're going to have to cherry pick from those two pages. So, yeah, final thoughts. I'll, I'll probably of... put it in. I'll put it on one of my podcasts. Final thoughts. Um, Good. Yeah. My, my final thoughts are that this is, this is a biopic that is... <clears throat> It might be the greatest biopic of all time, or it might be something else masquerading as a biopic. Yeah. Because mm. I, I don't ultimately see Nolan as someone who does genre movies. I mean, you could say he's done a sci-fi, he's done a spy movie, he's done a war movie. You could say that, but then if, when I think of those films, I don't really necessarily think of them as comic book movies or sci-fi movies, I see them as something that transcends that. I don't really yeah. see this as a biopic. I think it's something better. And I do think it's one of his, his best films. I would rank it up there. Like I'm, I'm like you, Danny. I am a huge Tenet fan. I love that film. And it boggles my mind that people get so caught up in it and research reasons to hate it. You know, mm -hmm. like having an entire subreddit thread that just that just is very strange to me. I'm not a huge fan of the Dark Knight Rises uh, or the Prestige. Inception is is better than average, but you know he has oh, done some enormous things, and I would put this and at the top end of his of his genius in terms of being a filmmaker and of course relying on a top notch production staff. Yes, oh, the production God. quality of this film from everything from uh, their house to the conference room to the senate hearing room to the open air spaces to the authentic things that you see in the background the tower looking exactly like the tower that you see in documentaries like the atomic bomb movie uh the the shape and size of of the fat man i just found all of that just unbelievable it was so accurate and you can't do that unless you have a top-notch production team and even their clothes, I mean, there's that one scene where he puts on his his group 
number on his lapel and he goes out into the street with his pork pie hat and his tie and his clothes and he looks like he just walked out of a newsreel i couldn't believe how much killian murphy just disappeared into this uh, living breathing person that i had seen in on the history channel the past uh you know 30 years before they got into aliens (laughs) (laughs) right yeah the real history the true facts (laughs) yeah it's a marvel of all elements writing cinematography by Hoyta van Hoytema, who's guaranteed a nom here that we've already mentioned the score by ludwig goranson uh, who did the score for tenant and won an oscar for black panther the man he is the guy in hollywood right now um, so amazing score that's guaranteed to be nominated we've gushed about all the performances i love big ensemble casts of A-list actors who come in for a two-minute scene, absolutely kill it, and then leave. That's such a a fun experience, and I really gravitate towards that. And the editing is is breakneck. I won't won't get over this, Mm -hmm. um, how how seamless the the film is. So to, to have high expectations, very rarely can those expectations be met. We've talked about this more in the pod, how... A flaw of mine is I get too excited for films, and these films cannot possibly live up to that. This film did, and I'm happy that it stuck to the book and that it put the atom bomb test, the Trinity test, at the end of the second act. I think that is really, really key to the success of the story and the lasting impact of the story. I can't wait to see it again. That's rare for me to say for three-hour movies. Even for two-and-a-half-hour movies, I rarely see those twice in theaters. But, yeah, I'm seeing this again, most likely in 70-millimeter IMAX. There's a few Regal theaters in town that we can go to instead of the AMC. So uh, we should do that. A little trivia for our listeners. There are only 19 movie theaters in the U.S. that can show a 70-millimeter print. And I found out that there's only six in Canada. Only six theaters that can show 70 millimeter films, which is pretty nuts. So sorry if you live in Canada, you have about a third of a chance that you're closer to a 70 millimeter um, theater if you're up there. Um, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to Ellen Mironyik. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She is the costume designer and she's done a lot of really interesting work, but she's only won an Emmy. She has not won an Academy Award. Well, probably future Oscar winner. But Although yeah, they I, will have to compete with Dune. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Problems. Unless, unless Dune doesn't come out this year. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, but, you know, I agree with everything that's been said. I think everything is top-notch. It's a gorgeous movie. And another thing that we didn't really get to talk about was how this movie was filmed in IMAX. And so I think... I personally was getting ready for a lot of landscape scenes, especially in New Mexico. But we really don't get a lot of that. We get a lot of close-ups, which is bold. And I think that also underscores how Christopher Nolan knows how to use this technology by now. And he knows how to break the rules now. Like He knows how to get a performance out of an actor who's acting to a camera that's probably... 18 times the size of their head and it is extremely effective in this movie in terms of getting that like complex 
you know, human emotions that are going across these incredibly successful actors' faces. So um, I find no flaws in this, and I'm going to go ahead and give my ratings. So four out of four for the movie, and I would say four out of four for the book purely because of how much time and energy and skill went into the research. And honestly, I found it, even though it was very academic, I also found it very personal. And I even wanted to mention how sweet it was that the authors refer to Oppenheimer as Oppie through almost the entire book. That made me feel like they had gotten to know him so well that they were actually comfortable using a very endearing term for him, which honestly, in a lot of, because I read a lot of nonfiction, for the most part, I think I really only read fiction for the podcast. And I don't see a lot of biographers or even a lot of, you know, autobiographers of themselves refer to them with a nickname. And I thought yeah, that was very that sweet yeah. and endearing. So, yeah, I would say four out of four for both of these pieces. Like, what a joy to prepare for this whole thing. <laughs> Is this the first book we've covered that's won the Pulitzer Prize? We'd have to go back. I don't know. I don't know. Probably, right? I honestly have no idea. All right. We'll get back to you on that. (laughs) I'm not comfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Dylan, final ratings. Uh, I would give the movie a four out of five. Um, I think it's, I think it's an exceptional achievement in filmmaking uh, by everyone Mm -hmm. who touched it. And uh, I know that, you know, we believe in the auteur theory, of course, this is Nolan's vision and his idea, but if he does not have a, a capable crew of executing that idea, then, and the idea is nothing. And I, I think yeah. it's, it's really, really good. Having said that, I have more favorite Nolan films right now that might change in the future. The book, mm-hmm. I would give a five out of five. I thought, I thought American Prometheus was an amazing achievement in academia. And as I'm sure you guys know, history can be dry. It can yeah. be static. It can read like stereo instructions. And mm. I just just fear every time I purchase a history book if I don't know the author or where it's going. And one of my favorite examples is a professor who told me about Garrett Mattingly, who was an author back in the 50s who wrote about ships. Garrett Mattingly wrote a book on knots, K-N-O-T-S, in shipmaking. And my my professor said it was the most riveting book he had ever read. Wow. It is all about the author. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah. you've, you've got to, as a historian, you've got to learn how to become an author. And that's what I really appreciate about, about Bird and Sherwin. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah, it's hard to really rate this book when we think about it, because it is just, as you both said, an achievement in academia. Um, yeah, four to four, two. Of course, there were times where listening to the audiobook I would have to go back and listen to a chapter or two because I was doing a task and all this information just went over my head. I'm like, I need to really commit to this. It's something that you need to actively commit to, but you're rewarded for the time you put in. And on to- that's what makes the movie so rich too. On top of being an exceptionally well-made piece of cinema, for those who have read the book, my gosh, there's that extra layer of benefits um of a climax of returns Mm -hmm. so yeah four to four for both like i said earlier i think this ranks probably number number four in nolan's filmography i will for you for me yeah 
Yeah. I will rank Inception, Dark Knight, and The Prestige higher. I think those have the nostalgia elements connected to that. You know, saw them in my formative years. This, unfairly, doesn't have that. But I think I think number four is, it's fair, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's fair. <laughs> um, all right. And with that, we've reached the end. Yeah, we've kicked off our summer blockbuster series. So thank you, Dylan, for opening that up with us. We're going to be covering a lot of stuff like Jaws and Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, stuff that were kind of like a buzzy movie when they came out during their time. And I think this certainly fits that definition. So thank you for oh, coming yeah. on for this this opener of a series. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy talking about movies with you guys. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We Thanks. could talk for hours with you. And where can people find you if you wish to be found? Uh, I have a website, that thatdylandavis.com, uh, where you can find my film reviews, my blogs, and the Super 70 podcast, uh, which is uh, hosted by SoundCloud, so you can find it there or anywhere that you find podcasts. You can email me direct- directly at thatdylandavis at gmail.com, and I am recently testing out threads. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Yeah, we have yet to do that, but all the kids are on it, so I guess inevitably we will will be there. So right. <laughs> let us let us know your experience. We'll do. Thank you very much, Grant. Awesome. Thank you, Dylan. All right, we will be back next week with our 100th episode special, a little retrospective of all the episodes we've done before. So you're right under the wire, uh, Dylan. So we'll be able to talk about your episode uh, next week as well. Great. Um, All right, so as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on episode 100. Peace. (laughs)